Welcome to this week's Treasury Career Corner podcast, where I interview treasury professionals about their treasury careers. Each and every week, I talk to them about how they've built their careers, where they are now, where they see both themselves and the treasury profession going to next. Let's get on with the show. In this week's show, delighted to be joined by a good old friend of mine, Johan Neistedt, the founder and president of Neistedt. In Enterprise Solutions, LLC. Well, uh, the group itself provides advisory technology services to enterprise risk management clients. Um, prior to founding the firm, Johan was actually the SVP finance for RR Donnelly, where he headed up M&A, investor relations and corporate FP&A. Before that, which is where actually I met Johan over the odd beer or three or several. Anyway, move on. He was the chief risk officer, treasurer, head of IR at Conagra. Addition, he's had many other senior roles throughout the years. That's what we're going to deep dive in in a minute. But we're going to take Johan back to the dim distant past. We'll then talk through his career, where he and why he started up this this firm and where it's going to go to. And then we'll, as always, in each week's show, we'll talk about the future. Particularly, I think that's very much linked to what Johan's doing as well. So I'll shut up. It's Johan's story. Over to you, sir. Take us back the beginning of your career and how you discovered finance and then treasury. Back to you, sir. Well, thank you so much, Mike. I appreciate that. I actually started a couple of companies in Europe, in Sweden predominantly, even before I came to the United States quite some time ago. When I came over to the United States, I had the chance to work at Philip Morris, nowadays Altria, which was exciting to me. I just finished my MBA uh, from Stockholm School of Economics. I came to the United States. I looked at this big business. They were in all sorts of, of interest in consumer product areas beyond tobacco. They were heavily invested in food space, Miller beer. They had a capital corporation, etc. So that really allowed me to to go from the type of you know startup companies that I was engaged uh, with in the 80s and 90s to go to the first kind of conglomerate after that. So, you know, it, it was really a way to gain additional experience by going to some big businesses that I found to be very interesting. And then uh, Mike from Philip Morris, you know, I went on to, to Kraft Foods. Mm-hmm. Uh, the reason for that was that I was heavily engaged in the Kraft Foods IPO uh, while still being with Altria. This was back in 2001 or so. And on the heels of being engaged, being part of a core team working on the Kraft IPO in 2001, you know, later on when when the board determined to spin off Kraft entirely from Altria, was asked by the team at Kraft to join them to uh, build and staff treasury for Kraft. So those did, were my first couple of steps after I came to the United States. Okay. And Johan, did you know treasury then or was it all new to yourself or what was the background? I, I didn't. Uh, so at, at uh, Altria, I uh, started to work in M&A. Uh, so I wasn't uh, at the very beginning directly involved in Treasury, uh, M&A and strategic planning. Mm. But I, I joined Treasury at Altria in 2001 or so. It was just a natural progression. They had the sense that um, it's good to kind of uh, help to rotate people or move people along and that was certainly very much appreciated by myself as well. You know, I always found it to be really helpful to 
to, to, to become as broad as you can. I think uh, for me, it was always exciting to, you know, go from one area to the other area. And I think the companies where I've been working at, you know, certainly facilitated that as well for me. And that was really exciting. And, you know, you then kicked into, you know, Treasury. Well, you know, a good move with Kraft Foods. Now, I know the group, you know the group. Some of our listeners may not know the group. If you can, you know, give people a bit of an insight, because then that influenced the number of the things that you sort of took part in, you know, things like everything through to, you know, Cadbury's and various other bits. Tell us about Kraft Foods, and then we'll move on through gently into Levi and things like that. Sounds good. So Kraft Foods is one of the biggest global food companies in the world. Back when I joined Kraft Foods, as I mentioned, it was it was just being spun off by Altria, the previous owner. Prior to the spin-off, there had already been an IPO where 20% or so of Kraft was listed on the public market space. We put together before the spin, the capital structure of Kraft, you know, the debt rate, credit ratings, etc. They had their own credit facility that we established. And then uh, at the time of the actual spin after the IPO in 2007, 2008, that's when Kraft became its standalone company. They operate in, uh, you know, way over 100 markets, campus around the world. They own uh, all sorts of products in snacks to, you know, all sorts of food businesses. I was engaged in treasury and M&A for Kraft, so I had a chance to be part of a number of, of divestitures, acquisitions, and I would say Kraft itself is kind of a product of a whole number of corporate development activity, inorganic activity uh, mm. in its past. And then you made the move from, so that was based in lovely Illinois, and you then made the move to Levi. How did that come about and what a, what a move that was? So talk us through. It was a really interesting progression for me. So at the time, we are now somewhere in 2010, 2011 timeframe, Kraft had just acquired Cadbury, the UK chocolate here. Mm. in a really interesting transaction. I think there's been a lot written about it. You know, I was in the midst of it. It was maybe not the friendliest acquisition of all times. There was a lot of reluctance, I think, from the Cadbury side and among public at large in the UK to kind of protect the crown jewel from, from Kraft acquiring it. But it was a really interesting acquisition because of how complex it was. But once we had that done and the Cadbury was successfully acquired and, and the, the integration looked to be well on its way, you know, from a pure treasure perspective, you know, I felt a little bit like I was, uh, you know, a little bit of filling my thumbs because clearly mm-hmm. Kraft was going to nurse its uh, balance sheet for quite some time after this big acquisition of this fine UK company. So when I was approached by one of the recruiting firms about this treasurer job at uh, Levi Strauss on the West Coast in San Francisco, I thought, hey, that could be really exciting. I've been living on the East Coast of the United States. I've been living in the middle of the United States. What about going to the West Coast of the United <laughs> States and experience uh, California with my family? So 
That's what we did because it was, again, a interesting. You know, I always thought it was important to push myself. It's important for anybody to push themselves out of their comfort zone. You know, Levi Strauss represented a totally different industry versus craft and food. It also allowed me for the first time to work for a below investment rate company. At the time, uh, Levi's was rated single B, I believe. And, and that by itself was exciting because, you know, you, you really get more. I mean, cash is king everywhere. But if you have a, a single B rating, I think your priorities uh, shift a little bit. And they had a so-called ABL, revolving credit facilities, an asset-backed facility because of its credit rating. So that was exciting to learn more about. And, and also the, 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 the fact that for, for Levi, I, I had the chance to uh, go beyond treasury. I was a treasurer, but go beyond treasury to assume a couple of other finance areas as well. So those were the key drivers. And you made that move before then, then making the move to Conagra. And again, so you went Midwest, straight across West Coast, and you did four or five years with Levi. And then, you know, the Windy City dragged you back, kicking and screaming. What what, what happened? Yeah, so, so you're correct. I was, I think I spent about five years with Levi Strauss on the West Coast. You know, great five years, not only from a professional perspective, but also to live with my, my wife and kids on the West on the West Coast for a while. So I appreciated that. Uh, what, what, what kind of drew me back to the Midwest is that Conagra, I found out that Conagra Brands was going to move its headquarters from Omaha, Nebraska to Chicago. And I connected with the CFO there at the time. And I said, hey, I'm hearing that you guys are going to move your headquarters from Nebraska to, to Chicago. I've been in the food space in the past. I kind of like it when, when you know, to, to be part of uh, corporate restructurings and corporate initiatives because it tends to provide for a lot of good stuff to do and learn. So I co- mm. contacted them, I think it was on Tuesday. So, you know, by, by, by Friday, the same week, I had my interviews with that CFO and the CEO and a few others. And, uh, and I was really excited about it because of the prospect of, again, being engaged in a little bit of corporate history for, for that company. So that drew me back to the Midwest. Amazing. And again, I know Conagra, we both do and things like that. What was that like? And sort of, again, from a treasury perspective, you've just mentioned there, and I think it's interesting, you had food groups and sort of commodities, that sense, then went through Levi, which is more apparel, and then back to food. What 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 drew you back by the free lunches? <laughs> I actually kind of looked to expand my industry experience, everything else equal. Hmm. You know, clearly going back to food was known territory from from the industry perspective. And there were enough many exciting things about Conagra, uh, even though back to the food space, that uh, I still felt that this is going to be challenging, which is a good thing. You know, in particular when you move the headquarters, and it wasn't like all the functions moved. A lot of finance was still going to stay in, in Omaha, Nebraska. Mm. Still is there today, as far as I know. So Treasury, for example, the piece um, I oversaw, Treasury Investor Relations, and later on uh, became the Chief Risk Officer on top of that. But from a Treasury perspective, you know, we definitely we wanted to have the debt capital markets team 
So the Capital Structure team in Chicago, you know, we have some very, very strong uh, cash management teams, credit teams, and insurance teams that stayed in, in Omaha. No reason to move them as it was working out really well. But we decided that we needed to have the investor relations functions in Chicago close to the CEO. So, you know, providing an opportunity to really think about the different treasury and treasury-related areas, as well as investor relations, and kind of think about what talent do we have, you know, where is it located now, and where does it make the most sense to have it in the future? And that was a really exciting uh, exercise to go through and worked pretty well for them. Well, then bring us to the next move, and R.R. Donnelly. So, you know, that natural step, you know, food, apparel, food, and then business communications and marketing. So, you know, how did that come about? What was that? And what was that like for you in a difference of treasury? I know you and I spoke about this before, and we've talked about it over a beer and, and or two. What, what was it like moving from, you know, because I, I talked to someone the other day about how working in, say, FMCG or, you know, a product you can touch, and a lot of the companies have different ways of approaching it but you're going to quite a different business stream as it were yeah no that is correct it's a bit a different business stream it's a different industry but uh, even though you know as you work with a company in the case of Ardonley, i was a senior vice president of, of finance and uh, my three main areas was m a heading up m a heading up investor relations and heading up corporate fp a even though the way you do that and the outcome is industry dependent and depend on the company, the company size, the credit ratings, uh, all sorts of, uh, of factors, the approach of getting to the right answer tends to be fairly similar. You know, mm-hmm. for example, for Treasury, right, it's really important to look at the couple structure. You know, it's really important to, uh, to, to uh, see, you know, given the capital structure, you know what type of initiatives can you can you afford to to conduct, mm. and what you what can you not afford to do? And if you want to do something, but you don't really have uh, either the debt budget for that, so or your debt constraint or 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 your risk constraint, then you know I think the job of of, of treasury folks is to then kind of, you know, help change the capital structure or help change the risk profile so that these initiatives are doable. Now, that's going to depend a lot on the company itself and a lot on, on the credit ratings, et cetera, and what risk appetite a company has. But the approach of getting to the right answer tends to be fairly similar. So for me, it wasn't really much of an issue to go into a different space Mm. I went from, you know, at Levi's, as that business really turned around, you know, we went from single B at Levi's to double B, kind of starting to flirt with uh, with investment grade. But at, at, at Conagra was definitely investment grade, but Ardonley was in the single B rating space. So again, I could really fall back on my experiences from Levi Strauss. Mm. And that capital structure and kind of creating the capital structure and supporting the capital structure for Ardonley, that was aligned with its uh, strategic objectives. And that was one of the things you led the sale of the group back in 2022. You know, what was that like for you in treasury terms? And, you know, then then bring us more up to date, if you like. Just before disclosure, Ardonley is the 
you know, at Howard Only, I was not responsible directly for Treasury, right? The three areas yeah. were yeah. M&A, SP&A, and Invest Relations. But clearly, to your point, you know, I worked extremely closely with the Treasurer and, and, and all the folks in Treasury. Because when you uh, engage in the types of M&A activity that I, I was heading up, obviously you need to work closely, very, very closely with Treasury, both as it pertains to divestitures, when you, when you have you know, cash coming in because you sell something, as well as obviously acquisitions, because now you give up cash uh, to, to buy something. And you have to be aligned with the Treasury team because, you know, we need to speak in a, in a consistent uh, fashion with the rating agencies about the rating agency impacts, especially at a company like R. Donnelly that is below investment grade. Mm. Uh, that was really clearly very important. So, yeah, I, I mean, when I joined uh, R. Donnelly back in 2019, before COVID, I, I thought it was a really interesting business because... If you look at R. Donnelly, they, they spun off some of their key businesses back at the tail end of 2016. And the R. Donnelly today, the R. Donnelly where I worked, was really the Remain Co. after them spinning off some really significant businesses and, and really was more of a kind of an American quilt of different businesses. And uh, that's what excited me about that M&A job was that it was pretty clear that in joining R. Donnelly on the M&A side, it was pretty obvious that a lot of work could be done and probably would be done. And that's exactly what it was. A lot of corporate development activity, a lot of acquisitions we looked at, a lot of divestitures that we closed on, which then culminated with uh, the sale of the entirety of what, what, what up until this year was a public company and selling it to private equity Mm. in a transaction that was uh, really viewed by Wall Street to be, you know, very value-enhancing and therefore provided uh, gains for, for, for the shareholders, which was, uh, which was great. And then your latest sort of venture, can you bring us up to date? You know, you and I talk, talked about it as well, but for the guys that are listening today, that, you know, some people might be thinking to themselves, oh, I wonder if I could do this or take it, because I know you've got a passion very much for what you're doing now. Bring, I'm not going to do it, you, I'll let you do it. Explain what you're doing now, why, and, you know, where you see it fitting. My new business, after after the sale of Art Only to private equity, you know, I thought, you know what, I've been, I've been thinking about, I've been flirting with the idea of starting my own business now for quite some time. Frankly, at the tail end of working at Conagra, I started to really get ready to start my own business. Uh, enterprise risk management has always been really, really uh, exciting to me. That's why I was able to kind of become the chief risk officer at Conagra, for example, because I kind of like the idea, you know, risk risk management has gone a long way. It's gone from, uh, you know, what I call once upon a time enterprise list management, a list with an L, where you kind of put together a list about risks and you hope that once you present it to the board or senior management, you hope nobody's going to ask you any questions about it because you had no depth to it, mm. to, to real enterprise risk management with an R which is very much connect, connected into the strategic initiatives of the business, 
real ERM is goes way beyond just identifying and surveying and prioritizing risks. It's about creating really strong risk management action plans where you denote uh, who's responsible for, for what and when should it happen and how are the different top risks connected to each other to also extend to you know the concept of portfolio of risk. And what I mean by that is that we measure the risk capacity. Uh, so risk capacity is when you look at the covenants, loan covenants or you know, bond covenants, or you look at the restrictions imposed by the rating agencies to maintain the type of credit rating you want to maintain, you can fairly easily measure how much risk capacity do you have. Mm. And then you can, once you know the risk capacity, given the ratings you're looking to stay within, you know, in terms of thresholds, then you can look at you know, what, what risk am I actually taking? Uh, and uh, I think the role of business is to take risk, no risk, no return, last time I checked. But it's also about not taking foolish risks. Don't take uncompensated risks or undercompensated risks. Look at risk almost like debt, right? I mean, debt is very near and dear to the hearts of anybody in Treasury because they tend to own cash and therefore they own debt. And debt and risk is kind of, kind of um, uh, similar in a way. Not only are they both four-letter words, but also... Debt is not necessarily a bad thing, right? I mean, we, we incur debt to get liquidity or cash to invest behind initiatives. Mm. Risk is very, very similar. Risk is something that we also incur as we launch new uh, initiatives or we acquire businesses. We just need to make, make sure that we manage the risk, that we handle the risk, that we don't take too much of it. So risk is good. We just have to make sure that we control it. And that's what really drove me to start this business, because I think today, the concept of debt and cash, of course, uh, people, people get, and we speak about leverage and, and so forth, and below investment grade, investment grade, but I think risk still has a long ways to go, and really deserves to be anchored into the strategic plans of businesses. Well, again, that's that's a nice segue. So in the future of Treasury, and, you know, obviously we're very Treasury focused. I know this is a wider remit with, you know, your your venture, as it were. But why do you, you know, we'll link it to risk management. We'll also think about the other things that are happening within Treasury. What are you thinking those treasurers out there need to be thinking about? What are you thinking, goodness, guys, you, the, and the, this is where you can help sort of thing. I, I don't want to make this a total sales pitch for yourself, but it can be a little bit of one. But explain to us again why this is important. You've had other guys, you know, way back when we had when ESG was coming up, and the, you know, the guys got into that, which is you know very evident. Why do you think this is so important, would you say? A couple of thoughts. Uh, one of the things that always impressed me with Treasury and Treasury professionals is that they are oftentimes called upon to go beyond the, the style of Treasury to really be part of the of the whole finance function and sometimes the entire you know support the entirety of the enterprise function. I think that's one of the really interesting aspects with Treasury is that they are uh, oftentimes entrusted to kind of go into new areas where there is no current obvious owner. And I think um, enterprise risk management is one of those areas. I mean, clearly now with the pandemic and inflation and supply chain disruptions, 
enterprise risk management truly is at the forefront of, of, of a lot of people's minds right now. And I think for, for treasury folks, I think enterprise risk management really is a great opportunity to be able to take something on that are truly going to bring them to the you know, table where strategic decisions are being made at the company, where, where strategic plans are created. Because ERM includes, uh, you know, uh, it's a very much linked to the strategic plan in that, that, you know, traditionally strategic plans was about, you know, oh, we're going to have point projections or point estimators about, you know, the next three years, the next five years, this is going to be our profit. But, but what ERM does is to kind of firm that up a little bit by, by helping company to figure out the, the critical success factors. Mm. so-called must-leaves in order to make that strategic plan really happen and also kind of inventories the interdependencies of the different strategic initiatives and provides risk triggers that, hey, if the assumption, if the strategic plan was based on the assumption of inflation being 2% and now it's 7%, you know, you know ERM kind of outlines, uh, lays out, what, what other aspects one should look at that are connected with, uh, for example, a certain inflation assumption. So it, yeah. it provides whoever manages the, uh, the ERM with a chance to be more directly linked, I think, to the strategic plan. So I think that's one aspect of, uh, of ERM that's yeah, well, interesting, of course. Well, let me jump in. I want to ask, so it, we have a number of listeners from the Treasury Assistant level through to Global Treasurer. So if I'm a treasury assistant analyst listening today, you you talk there, it's very high level, ERM, you know, that's my treasurer's responsibility. What 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 connection do I have it on a day-to-day basis? You know, I'm doing my treasury dealing, you know, why, why is ERM of any significance to them? Or is it just something they're studying their exams later and maybe one day they'll touch on it? How would you describe that to them? That's a great question. I think, you know, when you start out in, in finance, including treasury, you know, some of the really important key aspects is to try to get to know the business. Because it's first when you get to know the business that you can become a business partner, right? And we talk about that a lot, a lot about, you know, treasury becoming more and more a strategic partner to the business. To getting, so getting to know the business is important. Getting to know the people, key people, is important too, especially to start out. You need to kind of uh, cultivate internal relationships as well as external relationships, and that's really important. And and to then become this partner based on, you know, get you know having been able to understand the business a little bit and getting to know people, you know, ERM enterprise risk management is a great tool to really add value because. You know, if you know exactly what the next person knows and if all the the focus areas are the same, what are you adding? But if you embrace something as as new and, 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 and exciting as ERM and you just look at that a little bit and try to provide that as your contribution to your business as to how you can add value as a business partner to the business based on the business you learned, you know, you, you, you looked at and the people you know. Mm. Then you really have something to come with. And then again, I'm, but I really want to try and you know get under this for a more junior member of staff or treasury manager or something like that. I know that ERM it sort of uh, encompasses things like cyber and you know all these different risks to a business. How would you then say so you're you, they're dragging you in? They're saying actually, can you explain ERM to 
our operations team or what they you know what they should what effect it should have on them or what what they need to be thinking about in their day-to-day jobs i know again you and i talked about this before how would you sell it present it how would you explain to those those guys that they need to keep it in the back of their minds would you say yeah i think in its very simplest form enterprise risk management is just to add the dimension of risk and uncertainty to the type of assessments or projections we tend to make. So, for example, if you are implementing, you know, a, a new system, a new treasury management system, you know, ERM could be taking a look at well, we are getting this new treasury management system together, but being able to monitor and track cash much better, by being able to have better analytics about our debt, how did this, you know, allow us to take on, you know, since we're reducing the risk now because we have more insight in cash and the capital structure through our new TMS system, you know, what what type of what what type of risk reduction does that provide? Just to go from, you know, or or, or plans, for example. Mm. You know, if you say, okay, my budget for two thousand twenty three calls for me to make a profit of a hundred million dollars and then the next year twenty four, a hundred and ten. I mean, at the simplest level, what ERM does is to say, Okay, got it. We think we're gonna make a hundred and then a hundred and ten. But what are the potential outcomes, other outcomes behind that? You know, mm-hmm. I don't want to be geeky, but, you know, what's the distribution? Or what's the realm of the possible? And, and if there is a really important assumption, be it like you said, in, in, in operations, you know, maybe the plan is based on starting up another seven plants somewhere, or maybe it's based on the company being able to, penetrate a new market somewhere, you know, uh, then, then, then ERM in its simplest form is just to have a sense as to, okay, I get it. This is what the strategic mm. plan calls for. But what are the key assumptions to make that happen? And what are the factors we should watch out for? Because if, if those critical success factors do not occur, the plan may be in, in, in danger, right? So I think yeah. at any level the analyst level, the manager level, just to think about, you know, initiatives, not just like, you know, initiatives that that are supposed to provide a certain, you know, profit on the road, but also kind of overlay the the, the risk behind that and opportunities behind that mm. to make projections, not just to be kind of point estimators, but, but just thinking about what are the risks and opportunities uh, engage uh, involved in the different in the different initiatives. I think that is what ERM is at, at yeah. its core. It was we we not that far off the end of the show because we keep it to about half an hour, forty minutes. If we go, Johan, looking back over your career, we're going to put in the show notes, obviously your LinkedIn profile, because I think it'd be great for people to connect to you because you know this is exactly what they need to be thinking about all this erm stuff coming through and everything else but if, if you reflect back over that time and before we give your top tips if you like as you reflect you know what sort of advice would you give to some of the listeners today obviously this is 
the Treasury Career Corner. You've had this amazing career so far in Treasury, and long may it continue. But what would you sort of push back to them and say, oh, you know, this is these are the kind of decisions you guys need to make, or you know, what sort of again you moved uh, well Midwest or East Coastish, uh, right the way across West and back again. You weren't afraid to make that move, and I know that we, you and I have connected a number of times. But you know, maybe it's that, or what other what other tips would you give to people? Maybe number one, I know it's oftentimes said, but I think there's a lot of truth behind it. Stay hungry. Get out of the comfort zone. In fact, as soon as you start to feel comfortable, it's probably time to, you know, either within the existing company or or a new company, you know, do something new. I think we learn the most as humans when we are challenged and, and when we are outside our comfort zone. So that's number one. Get out of the comfort zone. When you're there, then do something else. Take some risk. Try to get to a new uh, job, position, rotation inside the company, or think about ex- uh, you know external opportunities. That's number one. Number two, I think it's sometimes forgotten by treasury people how how great, how unique the treasury treasury works is because it's one of the few areas in finance that truly can be quite external, right? I mean, yeah. how many areas of finance do you have? We have the chance of, of working with exter- external stakeholders like, you know, debt holders when you issue debt, you know, banks when you work on cash management in, in initiatives, credit rating agencies. You really have a lot of external interactions and the potential of a lot of external interactions in Treasury. And that is highly sought after in your organization. So if you want to become the strategic business partner, just by virtue of you naturally, likely having connections with the external community, that by itself is going to provide you quite a bit of value internally in your organization as well. And then lastly, as I mentioned before, you know, at any stage of your career early on or later on, you know, really try to always understand, get to know the business and, 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 and keep that up and, and tie connections with people know the people, and then be aware. Change is everywhere. The, the mm. one thing that is not going to change is that change will, will continue to happen. So, yeah. you know, be aware of that. Try to contribute to it. Digital transformation, I think it's really important. And would that be your wrap-up? Or, I mean, I, you know, as I said, I was I didn't mean to be unfair there, but, you know, we'll put your LinkedIn details in the show notes. But as you reflect back on it or, you know, think about, you know, some of the, the future is – you know, is there anything else that, you know, you, you you think, you know what, yeah, this is what these guys listening today, you've heard a couple of the shows yourself before, that, you know, any, any final takeaways that they should have as well as those, because I think they were great. Yeah, a uh, final takeaway would simply be, you know, I truly feel that enterprise risk management is the entry ticket into strategic discussions and being part of the room where, where, where you know, being in the room where it happens. So it's uh, one of those tools you can use to really have the chance to be more involved in uh, strategic decision-making. And I don't think you need to be at very top level in Treasury to do that. I think ERM is going to be just like technology and, uh, you know, foundational Excel skills or whatever was in the past. It's going to be the path in. Yeah, amazing. Well, as I say, I'll put Johan's details in the show notes. I know he's a great guy to have in your network, and I can't wait to see him later on this year, hopefully maybe AFP or maybe other bits as well. 
you know, we'll be across in Chicago as well. It's amazing to talk to you, sir. And yeah, just looking forward to it, really, really, you know, catching up and 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 good luck with this new new venture. I think you're you're bound to do well because we know each other and I know you know how commercial you are. And I think anybody again, you want to sort of talk ERM, connect with you, Johan. He's definitely someone to have in your network. So no, amazing. Thank you, sir. And uh look forward to seeing you soon. Thank you so much, Mike. Hello, it's Mike here again. I hope you enjoyed this week's show. If you did, then maybe you want to follow the show or subscribe, depending on where you listen, whether that's iTunes, Spotify, or another great place to listen to the show from. It's totally free and means that you'll be the first to see each and every week when we release a new show. And maybe whilst you're there, you could even leave a quick review. Reviews and ratings are among the most important metrics for a podcast to effectively rank. And as you can probably appreciate, the podcast is a lot of hard work to produce every week. It'd be amazing. Just take, say, 20 seconds, leave a quick review of my amazing guests and their great career stories. We'd really appreciate it. Thanks very much, and I can't wait to see you soon.